Hello, and welcome to the course. I'm your host today, Julie, and I'm speaking with Professor Patrick Jagoda from the Departments of English, Cinema and Media Studies, and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Chicago. Professor Jagoda specializes in media theory, game studies and design, science studies, and 20th and 21st century American literature and culture. He is the co-founder of the Game Changer Chicago Design Lab and the Transmedia Story Lab, as well as the executive editor of the interdisciplinary journal Critical Inquiry. He is here today to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Jagoda. Thanks for having me. Can you give me a general overview of your career path starting in your college years? Sure. As a as an undergraduate, I attended Pomona College. And in college, I was an English and a philosophy double major. And I also took a large number of courses in political science and in creative writing. And really, since high school, I loved reading and learning and knowledge. And I never thought I'd become a professor in those years. But I loved knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And I also loved I loved it for the world-changing capacity I saw it as having. So, you know, books, when I read them when I was younger, really opened up worlds and possibilities that I, I never would have known about otherwise. Across my career, I, I've worked as a literary and cultural critic, a media theorist, a game designer, a digital media artist, and a health activist. And these are roles that, you know, might appear discreet, but they've been thoroughly integrated across my life and my work. Now I'm a professor in the English Cinema Media Studies and Obstetrics and Gynecology departments. At the highest level, I work in media studies. So I'll give you a quick example of some of my, my scholarships there. So one of my books, Network Aesthetics, explored the network as a metaphor and a form that started to proliferate in the 20th century through things like complexity science, globalization, and telecommunications networks like the internet. Another one of my books, Experimental Games, looked at the prominence of video games. So this is an almost $200 billion a year industry that far outshines the film and the music industries. And it's one of the most important art forms and cultural media that we have in the 21st century. At the same time, we've seen a rise of something called gamification, which is the application of game mechanics to traditionally non-game areas. So I'm thinking of things like personal health and fitness, shopping, even dating. So I was interested in the centrality of games to contemporary society and economic structures. And the book explores how video games can help us better understand the economic, political, and social dimensions of our world. And then outside of scholarship, I'm a game designer. So some of the projects I work on are serious and educational games I've collaborated with medical and public health faculty at my Game Changer Chicago Design Lab. And we've created, say, a video game to combat sexual harassment and sexual violence. I've worked with the same people on a suite of board games about public health topics like reproductive justice, food insecurity, and structural inequality. I've also worked with collaborators at the Forecast Lab on a unique series of alternate reality games. And these are basically games that combine online play and live action performance. So we've created large-scale games for middle schoolers, high schoolers, and adults in a variety of contexts. So we created two games about climate change, two others about the COVID-19 pandemic, and a few other more artistic games. So alongside my scholarship, my research also includes this form of practice. 
I want to go back to when you were younger and you mentioned in college, you really loved this idea of learning for the sake of learning. But I want to talk more specifically about things like games and literature that you study now. Were you someone who played a lot of games? Were you someone who thought about these things? Where where did some of those interests originally spark from in your younger years? When I, when I was younger, I think I came into a lot of this, not necessarily through games. I did play many games when I was growing up. But I never could have imagined that that would be a viable career pathway. I, I remember, you know, one of the ways that I got into the kind of work that I do now is through philosophy. So the the summer after my freshman year in high school, I, I discovered philosophy. So my best friend at the time and I started reading stuff like Karl Marx and Jean-Paul Sartre and Nietzsche, as well as kind of philosophically oriented fiction. And we would read and then talk about the readings on the phone or meet up in person and debate what we were reading. But you know, the, the funny thing is that we were 14 years old and neither of us had any business reading this stuff. It's not like it had been introduced to us by a teacher or that our parents had encouraged us to read this material. We were just hungry for ideas and there was a kind of freedom to it. So I think, you know, this friend and I would also do other nerdy things like programming games for our TI-85 graphing calculators, which they were not designed to do by the way. Or that same summer, we submitted a letter to the Mars Society about why we thought human beings should explore Mars. So there was basically this very interdisciplinary environment that I was able to, to move my way into with some of my friends kind of early in high school. And I think some of that became the, the foundation for the work that I would do uh, later. There were some other very unusual sources for this too. So, you know, one of the really formative experiences that led to my career pathway in those early days uh, was doing policy debates. So in high school, policy debate gave me the opportunity to travel nationally and compete at the highest level and debate was a kind of natural feeder for law school, which is what I imagined I would be doing at the time. So that was like a really big part of my formation as a, as a thinker and somebody who wanted to do research. And then, you know, this is another strange thing. Like it wasn't, again, games were the thing that I would like run off to to escape. And then I had this deep fascination for, but didn't really have a, a language or an understanding of how I could find my way into that in the way that many of my students do, right? I mean, they, they want to be game designers from the time they come here. But when I was in middle school and high school, I participated extensively in theater and performance activities. So I, I ended up being in everything from The Music Man to Much Ado About Nothing. I also spent several years acting in a, in a Polish theater group. So in those years, I lived in Chicago, which still has the largest Polish population Outside of Warsaw, I think there were nearly 1.5 million people of Polish descent in the extended Chicagoland area, many of whom speak primarily Polish. So we, we did performances mostly for even younger children as a way of inviting them to practice their Polish language. We did performances of Snow White, Winnie the Pooh, Secret Garden, and, and various Polish plays. And it's strange to think about theater as a precursor to becoming a media professor, but so much of the work that I do in large lecture courses or during public talks is a form of performance. Sometimes I've even been, you know, like featured in documentaries where I'm a talking head, and that's a form of performance as well. So I think all of these strange sources of like reading books with friends, doing debate, doing performance we're all really important precursors for moving into this career pathway. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you were younger? I know you mentioned maybe thinking about being a lawyer or a 
an actor? What what was your idea of what your career path would look like? I think when I was younger, I wanted to be Astro Boy, but I was a little too human to become a proper robot. And, you know, then I went through like a Batman phase too. I'm kidding. But I, I think... I mostly wanted to be a writer or an actor in my early days, but I realized neither of those were particularly practical or sustainable as long-term career pathways. And so I eventually did land on the possibility of becoming a lawyer. I got as far as practicing the LSAT and preparing to apply for law school. And one of the reasons one of my two undergraduate majors was philosophy was because I had read that it offered some of the best preparation for law school, right? It gives you analytical skills. It encourages you to form well-supported arguments and make distinctions, to formulate definitions, to tackle abstraction, to write clearly. Anyway, I I ended up not going to law school, but that orientation and skill set appealed to me. Strangely enough, I, I returned to my creative roots by moving into game design and media art. So even though I had dreamed of being a writer or an actor, I ended up being able to do all those things, but in the context of an art form that wasn't really an art form when I was growing up. It kind of went from being a mass cultural form to an even bigger mass cultural form that also had interesting artistic tendrils to it. Who were some of the important mentors who really shaped you and your career path? I'm thinking maybe professors or employers or even family members or people that were close to you, but who who were some of the people who were most influential in your career path? Yeah, I've been very lucky in my life in the sense of having many mentors. I didn't come from a community in which people went on to become professors. Most of my family was in Poland and they worked in agricultural and industrial sectors So I I benefited from real support that got me to where I am today, especially as a a first-generation U.S. college student. The the most important person to me growing up was my mother, Irene. She didn't study the kinds of things that I ended up studying in school. She's an immensely intelligent and curious and spirited person. And in the early 1980s, she fled Poland as a political refugee who had been part of the Solidarity Movement. I was myself born in a refugee camp in Austria. And later, we went on to live in Sydney, Australia together prior to ending up in the U.S. uh, many years later. My mother raised me to think about a range of social and transnational issues. But in Poland, she had been a volleyball coach who had worked with Paralympic athletes with various disabilities. And I feel like she coached the hell out of me when I was growing up. And I I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I was an awful athlete. I fit right in at the University of Chicago where sports go to die. But she applied the same level of intensity to pushing me in academics. And the notable thing is that she was pushing me to excel in a system that she herself hadn't experienced. Neither of us spoke English well for the first few years that we lived in the U.S. And until third grade or so, I was always in the lowest reading group, the lowest writing group in school. So there's a certain irony to me ending up as an English professor of all things. But my mom had an intense immigrant mentality where she made me not just finish my homework, but get ahead with it. There was very little free time growing up, even as I loved watching television, playing video games. The one thing she was okay with me doing in terms of those kinds of leisure activities actually was reading comics. So we read comics together and analyzed them. So that's probably 
where my love of interpretation and analysis came from originally. But there, there's no way I would be a professor at the University of Chicago with the kind of support that my mother and, and my father and my uncle and my entire family provided me with uh, growing up. There's also another person without whom I, I never would have ended up in a PhD program or having become a professor. So early in my second year in college, I met a professor named Tony Clark. In addition to, to being a professor of English, she was also something called the Dean of Women. And we don't have this at the University of Chicago, but she mostly advised women at the college and conducted work in women and gender studies. In my second year, I took a course called Modern and Postmodern Fiction with her. I think I was probably a total pain in the ass in those years. I was dedicated to my work, but I was also very intense. So it's hard for me to imagine why she would have supported me in the ways that she did. But one day toward the end of that course, she called me into her office. We started chatting. And then she suddenly asked me, what are you going to do after you graduate? And remember, I was in my second year, like a second year undergraduate student. But of course, like being who I was, I knew I was what I was going to do. So without missing a beat, I responded, I'm going to law school. And I remember this so distinctly, right? Like Tony looked at me and she said, no, you're not, right? So, so that was already surprising having a professor I admired say this to me. But being the ridiculous person that I was, I immediately shot back, yes, I am. So this started to sound like the Irving Berlin song, anything you can do, I can do better, right? No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. But anyway, she looked at me and said, you should apply to pursue a PhD. Now, honestly, again, as a first-generation U.S. college student, this had never occurred to me. It just it wasn't on my radar. It had been enough of a mystery about how you even get into college or what college you go to. But then the idea that I could maybe be a professor someday was something else. And she continued to support me and push me down that path. It's, it's kind of generosity that makes me tear up to this day when I think about it or talk about it, you know, because it, it, it's hard to imagine how one can repay that kind of kindness, especially because she passed away in 2016 when I was already at the University of Chicago. I guess the very small way that I try to pay this back is by encouraging my own students to pursue their dreams or, or trying to anticipate directions they might want to go before they see what might be possible. And I'm especially committed to this with uh, first-generation college students and underrepresented students because they don't always have access to the same range of future pathways. So my mother and this professor, Tony Clark, were immensely important in my formation. There were many other professors, too, at Pomona College and at Duke University, where I did my PhD, like my advisor, Priscilla Wald, who really stood by me and supported me. But basically, I've been ridiculously lucky to be able to find a, a handful of extremely committed people who have gone above and beyond in helping me move across this path. Can you tell me about moments of resistance that you've met in your career? It could be moments of self-doubt or an external resistance you've met, but what have been some of the challenges that you have faced in your career path? So I, I grew up playing video games. Again, I never in a million years imagined that computers and digital media and video games would be a central part of my work. And in the humanities, this wasn't even a viable field when I was in graduate school. In many ways, I, I trained myself to do this kind of work during my postdoc and my early years as an assistant professor. And during that time, there were many people who told me not to do it, right? Because video games were stupid or they're addictive or simply that they were culturally irrelevant when compared to literature or to fine art, for instance. 
So for a while, I had to do this on the side and to develop a language to justify the study of games to my colleagues and to the broader field. Of course, I wasn't doing this by myself, right? There are a bunch of scholars working on games. There was no one really doing it at the University of Chicago when I arrived. So in many ways, I had to create the position that I wanted to occupy and fight for it. Now, it was a really positive thing that my colleagues were willing to listen to me, to ask me challenging and fruitful questions to sharpen my thoughts. So there were people who were supportive in, in their own way and in really helpful ways. But there were also other people who just thought that it was you know, a bonkers direction to take with your career, especially in the humanities. And, and I, can't, I can't overstress how many people said, no, don't do this, or how many grants my teams applied for that we didn't get. But my collaborators and I were just persistent, maybe even stubborn. And I think, you know, I don't like giving advice, but if I was giving advice to students, it's, you know, not to like repeat the same thing if it isn't working indefinitely, but to be more persistent than feels comfortable. Because I think many of the most compelling things I've been able to do with my career were the result, not just of one failure, but of a series of failures. I'm curious how you ended up deciding to go into an academic field. I know you've done a lot of other things as well, so maybe you can talk a bit about that. But can you tell me about the decision to pursue a career as a, as a professor and as someone who is a researcher and a teacher in addition to a game designer? I started in a place where I was always interested in analyzing novels and popular culture and reading philosophy and sociology and psychology and those forms of scholarship. So I didn't necessarily start as a maker, except in the sense that I was engaged in creative writing from a very early age. I never really had a background as a programmer until I did a little bit of that work later. But the game design thing came somewhat late and came as the result of a series of collaborations. So I was able to meet visual artists and programmers and designers who taught me about the other parts of making a piece of multimedia storytelling or just a piece of interactive art. So I think it was a mixture of curiosity and understanding of the art form that, that allowed me to become a designer. And, and this is another thing that I can I can say to people is I sometimes have undergraduates, you know, who are 18 or 19 who will come to me and say, oh, it's too late. Like, I can't learn how to create games in Unity, or I can't learn how to program, or I can't learn how to produce visual art, or I can't learn how to work in teams in the following way. And I understand that impulse, but it's also somewhat funny to me because, you know, like, I'm much older than them, and I still feel, perhaps foolishly, but I still feel like I can learn so much just by putting my ego aside and delving into, into other areas. And that's exactly what happened with game design. I was able to collate this archive that I had from my childhood, right? From having played NES games and Sega Genesis games and games on my PC and understanding things implicitly about what those genres and what those forms were like. I was able to take that collated with everything that I had learned as an undergraduate and as a graduate student in my interdisciplinary courses and then was able to learn just enough on the technical side to be able to become a game designer. And I've been someone who many times during my career has kind of switched switched pathways or at least supplemented what I do with other methods and other techniques. What is your favorite part about your current role? And, and specifically, I'm thinking about your job as a professor at the University of Chicago. What would you say is one of the most enjoyable parts about the job that you have? 
the most fun part of it all is working with students. And I feel so genuinely lucky at the University of Chicago getting to work with some of these young people who surround me. They're not just intelligent. They're not just talented. They're quirky and passionate about their thought. I'm sure that's not true of all students, but so many of the ones I've worked with really show up. I also love the challenge of pursuing original work and conducting experiments that are exploring areas that no one has explored in the same ways. When I work on an alternate reality game or a piece of transmedia storytelling, there isn't a blueprint for how to make those things. There aren't really textbooks that provide all the ins and outs of how one would either make or even theorize some of these emergent art forms. So I really like being in a profession where I get to be on the cutting edge of knowledge and aesthetics. I know you said you don't like to give advice, but I'm going to ask you to give a little bit of advice or a little bit of guidance to a student who is listening, who is interested in these types of subjects. What guidance would you give to someone who is interested in pursuing a similar path as yours? I would give two pieces of advice, and neither of them have to do with the content of any of the fields that I'm involved in. The first piece of advice would just to find a way to become yourself. It's easy to chase fashion and trends that will likely be gone within a few years or even a few months. But dig deep in discovering the research questions that matter to you. If there are real stakes to the questions that you're asking as a scholar, as a scientist, as an artist, those will take you somewhere. But let yourself be driven by those questions and not by fashion. And second of all, try to fail while you can. And I, I don't want bad failure for anyone or precarity or anything like that. But college in particular is a time when you can learn by taking risks and failing, at least in some areas. I always encourage my students to fail in the most interesting and wildest possible ways that they can, right? I would even say invent new ways to fail that no one has known before. So it's not just a question of like trying something and it doesn't work, like create frameworks that people haven't tried before and be open to putting six months of work into something that doesn't work out because those six months will not be wasted. You'll learn something during that time that will inflect some future project or some future idea that you have. Experimentation requires a great deal of failure and there's no innovation and no learning without experimentation. My last question for today is what is the most gratifying thing that you do in your current role? I know I asked about the most fun thing, and I think of them as, as a little bit different as the thing that kind of makes you feel the happiest versus the thing that makes you feel the most fulfilled. But what would you say is the most gratifying part about your current career at the University of Chicago and beyond? You know, I'm not the kind of person who could just keep writing books or articles in my area of specialization. I've always been inclined toward intellectual promiscuity or maybe just expansive generalism, which some people might recommend against. But I like to see how different disciplines do things and how theorists, historians, and practitioners generate their discoveries and their creations. And over the years, I've had the good fortune of working with people coming from the arts, design, the social sciences, the biological sciences, and, and different humanistic fields. And, you know, some scholars are in it just to make a name for themselves, but I'm more interested in the communities I can connect with and the collectives I can sometimes help bring into existence. And collaborative work is really the most gratifying part of what I'm doing right now. It can be immensely challenging at times, but it's a challenge that surprises me and helps me grow as a thinker and a maker 
And so I want to keep pursuing collaborations that surprise me and pull me in new directions. In 2022, I worked with a group of collaborators at the Forecast Lab. This included a theater and performance faculty member who works as a dramaturg. This included a filmmaker who works with algorithmic film. It included another game designer. Uh, It included a number of different artists, including set designers, for instance, And we created a game about climate change for three different middle schools. We had about 350 players who were involved in this game for three weeks. And they ended up completing about uh, 2,500 climate quests that were teaching them things about environmental science and climate change through the framework of gameplay, including live streaming interactions with actors who were part of this game. That's an example of the kind of project that I find really gratifying because I couldn't have even started that project, let alone completed it without a bunch of brilliant people who had different techniques than the ones that I have. But I also came out of that project having discovered things that I didn't know before and being more ready to engage those kinds of projects in the future. Professor Jagoda, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for talking, Julie. Thank you again for your time, Professor Jagoda and course takers. If you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. See you around. See you around.